I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we make our way through uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, addressing the particular needs and, uh, and issues that were plaguing the church at the time, we come to chapter 7, and I'd like to begin reading for us in verse 10 down to verse 16. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if, in, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the, his wife, and the un, unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you. For the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, it's often said that half of all marriages in this country end in divorce. I actually found out this, week, this last week that that is not true. In the past 10 years, divorce rates have actually decreased some 18%. Well, this is due in part to the fact that marriage itself is on the decline. Many younger people decide just to forego the whole concept of marriage, and so divorce is not factored into that. Well, clearly, one thing is certain that one's view of divorce is intimately tied to one's view of marriage, and this world has a completely different idea or concept of both marriage and divorce than the church should have. But sad, sadly and tragically, divorce rates amongst professing Christians are just as high amongst uh, the rest of the world. And I think this is in part because the church as a whole does not speak with one voice on the issue. You have various uh, factions within the church, whether it be the Roman Catholic Church that forbids divorce of any kind, or others that permit any sort of divorce. You have this wide spectrum, and people do not know who to listen to. This despite the fact that both our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the Apostle Paul in our passage today, spoke very clearly on the topic of divorce. So I think our passage is very timely for us to consider as we see the Apostle Paul here address the Corinthians and charges them not to be conformed to this world with regard to their stance and practice of divorce, but rather to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. 
And while he clearly speaks against the practice of just divorcing for any reason at all, we also see the Apostle Paul recognizing the fact that there are instances in this life where the innocent party, or where for whom the innocent party, divorce is inevitable. You may recall, for those of you who have been with us for the past several weeks, the Apostle Paul, uh, starting in chapter 7, began addressing issues that the Corinthians had, had raised to him in a letter that they had sent. First, he dealt with a view that had encouraged celibacy even within the confines of a marriage. Well, Paul flat out rejected that extreme view, affirming the goodness of intimacy within marriage as a gift of God. And so he exhorted that, that married partners ought not to deprive one another of that good gift. In verses 8 through 9, he addressed the, those who were single within the congregation, both the unmarried and the widows. And he suggested for them that it would be good for them to remain single, even as he was, but only if they possessed the gift of singleness. And so affirming both the goodness of marriage as well as the goodness of remaining single in this life as separate gifts that God sovereignly bestows upon us, the Apostle Paul now shifts his attention, beginning in verse 10. He redirects his attention to those who are married within the congregation, but for those who may have been contemplating getting a divorce. And Paul addresses those people in verse 10 and charges those Christian couples within the congregation to not get a divorce. He says, don't do it. And yet the Apostle Paul doesn't even have to use his own words here, but rather he uses the direct teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was here in his earthly ministry, spoke very firmly about divorce. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says, I charge you. And then he backs up and he says, actually, this is the Lord's very words. Do not get a divorce. Well, here the Apostle Paul is undoubtedly referring to the teaching of our Lord as it is found in Matthew chapter 19. When the Pharisees came up to the Lord in order to test him, and they asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see, by Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought amongst the Jewish rabbis about what constituted uh, legitimate grounds for divorcing one's wife. And in the Jewish custom, only the male had the right to, uh, to file for divorce. The wife did not have that right. And the two schools of thought went this way. One school of thought said only in the case of sexual immorality could a man divorce his wife. Whereas the other school of thought says you could divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. If she burnt your toast, if she displeased you in any way. There's even one uh, uh, Jewish rabbi who said, if she has bad breath, you could divorce her for any cause whatsoever. And this school of thought uh, brought the the, the Jewish understanding of divorce in line with the Greco-Roman understanding of divorce, which the Corinthians found themselves in. You see, amongst the Greco-Roman culture, it was very easy to get a divorce. And, and people would divorce each other, both male and female, for any cause whatsoever. It was as simple as saying, take your things and go. You didn't even have to get, uh, uh, you wouldn't even have to legally file for divorce to do this. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uh, having those two schools of thought floating around in his day, was confronted. What side do you take? 
And so Jesus says, answers, and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ takes his opponents all the way back to the very beginning of marriage, to the beginning of the book of Genesis, when God had created man, male and female, and created them for each other and united them together as one flesh, as he quotes there from Genesis 2, 24. You may recall that the Apostle Paul just quoted this passage back in chapter 6 to highlight how horrible the sin of sexual immorality is. And yet our Lord quotes this passage positively to show that marriage indeed is part of God's ordinance, part of God's creation. Indeed, it is a gift that God gives to mankind. And so we should not take that gift and rip it apart. What God has put together, Jesus says, no man should separate. It's interesting, after our Lord says this, the, the, the The Pharisees reply with another quotation from the Old Testament. They quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is the part of the Old Testament law that that, uh, allows for divorce. And they say, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus replies by saying, because of the hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But, But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. You see, here our Lord Jesus Christ clearly sides with that school of thought that said the only legitimate grounds for a male to divorce his wife is in the case of sexual immorality. If uh, if the wife had cheated on him only in that instance. Is he permitted to get a divorce? And if he divorces his wife for any other cause and marries another, this is tantamount to the sin of adultery. Very clear teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also see this in the Sermon on the Mount when our Lord speaks on the topic of adultery. And and the Apostle Paul in our passage today takes that teaching, which Jesus gave in a Jewish context, which is why he only spoke of men divorcing their wives, and the Apostle Paul applies that to the Greco-Roman context in Corinth, in first century Corinth, which is why he starts off by addressing wives first. You see, as I said, in the Greco-Roman law, Uh, Both partners, either partner, could file for divorce. So the Apostle Paul first begins by addressing the wives, and then he addresses the husbands, and he says, do not get a divorce. One thing that needs to be cleared up here is that the way it's translated in verse verse 10, it says the wife should not separate from her husband. It should be clear that there was no distinction between separating and divorcing in the ancient world like we do, like we have today. Today we do, we distinguish between a separation and a legal divorce. In the ancient world, they were merely synonyms. And so those words, whether it is separate or divorce, are used synonymously. They mean the same thing in our passage today. But again, another thing I want to highlight is how the Apostle Paul, throughout this entire chapter, as, as he addresses issues of both marriage and divorce, he goes out of his way to address both 
husbands as well as the wives. For him, marriage is something that is mutual. There is equality within the marriage. Both parties are responsible, which is why he, he uh, you know, repeats the wording. The wife shouldn't separate from the husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But of course, the Apostle Paul was a realist. The Apostle Paul, in his experience in life and in experience in ministering amongst the various churches, he knew quite well that even Christian marriages could devolve to the point where one or more parties are completely set on divorce. That no matter what you tell them, regardless of the fact whether they have biblical grounds or not, the Apostle Paul knew people would just simply say, I don't care what you tell me, I'm going to get a divorce Anyways, which is why the Apostle Paul says that if she does do that, if she does flat out contradict the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the teaching that I'm giving you, the Apostle Paul has two options. He's not condoning this. He's just recognizing that it happens. And in the case where a believer divorces uh, his or her spouse, For unbiblical causes, the Apostle Paul has two options. Option number one, you remain single. That is, you do not get married to someone else. Or option number two, you need to be reconciled to the one whom you left. And that is why, I think the reason why the Apostle Paul says this is that if if you divorce somebody for an illegitimate reason and marry another... If the guilty party remarries, this would, this would merely compound the sin. That's why our Lord Jesus Christ says that if you do that, you yourself are committing adultery. You are compounding the sin by divorcing someone without biblical grounds and then remarrying another. I think the principle here is very clear. You cannot get rid of the spouse you do not want for any reason in order to get a new one. You can't get rid of the spouse for whatever reason you don't like in order to obtain someone who you would rather have. This is exactly what was happening amongst the Jewish men of Jesus' day and and what was happening amongst both men and women in the Greco-Roman culture. And the Apostle Paul says, stop it. Your spouse is not like a car that after five to ten years you could trade in and upgrade for a new one. Indeed, marriage is something that is to last through thick and thin for the rest of your life. And that's why the Apostle Paul has these very strong words. And so there, the Apostle Paul is addressing and speaking to Christians who are contemplating whether they ought to get a divorce. And he says, if you do not have biblical grounds, do not do it. But then in verse 12, he addresses another group of people within the congregation. He says, to the rest. Now, these are the the rest of the people who were married within the congregation, but who happened to be married to an unbelieving spouse. Now, it's not that the Christian had married an unbeliever. Clearly, the Apostle Paul at the end of our passage makes clear that if you're a Christian and you're contemplating whether you ought to get married, that you should only marry those who are in the Lord. That is, you ought to only marry fellow believers. But here the Apostle Paul is addressing a a, a scenario where one spouse uh, became a Christian 
and the other spouse remained an unbeliever, uh, wanted to stay in their pagan beliefs, which was very common amongst Gentiles. And also something that our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here in his earthly ministry, never dealt with. Because our Lord Jesus Christ, for the vast majority of his earthly ministry, ministered to the Jews. And yet the Apostle Paul, as the apostle of the Gentiles, often would encounter this scenario as he went and preached throughout all the various cities, throughout uh, Asia Minor and into Greece. And uh, as, as he proclaimed the gospel, one, one spouse would believe where the other remained an unbeliever. And so that's why the Apostle Paul separates what he is saying from what the Lord is saying, not to, uh, not to minimize his authority, but actually to put his authority on par with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he says, I, not the Lord, tell you this. That is, I, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, address this new situation where you have a believer married to an unbeliever. And Paul's command for these people is the same as the command he gave to the Christian couples Do not get a divorce. Do not divorce your spouse, assuming that the unbelieving spouse desired to remain in that marriage. Now, this would have been very significant in the ancient world because most households were set up in such a way that that each household had their own patron god. And typically, it was, the, it was sort of the patron god or deity of the head of the household known as the pater familias. And part of the respect that you would show to the head of the household, the, the pater familias, as they were called, was that you would pay homage or worship the household god that was handed down from generation to generation. And so you can imagine the ine- inevitable tension that would arise, for example, if a woman became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and immediately refused to worship that pagan deity. You could see how the husband would take that as a sign of disrespect and therefore would not want to remain married to this woman because he's not, she's not giving him the respect he thinks is due. Likewise, if, if a husband became a believer... And he immediately wanted to put out these household gods, no longer wanted to practice this uh, pagan religion, but worship only the triune God as he's revealed in Scripture. You could see how an unbelieving wife would say, I'm out of here. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. And so you could imagine these scenarios where the unbelieving spouse would no longer want to remain married to the believer. And yet the Apostle Paul says, if they consent to live with you, if they want to remain married, if they're happy to abide in the scenario where one worships the the true and living God and the other one continues to worship the idols. And Paul says, stay together, stay married. And you could see how Paul's language that he had used previously in chapter, uh, uh, back in chapter six, when he talked about the fact that that the believers, the bodies of believers are members of Christ and temples of the Holy Spirit. You could see how that language could somehow be misconstrued into thinking that a mixed marriage, one between a believer and unbeliever, was somehow innately sinful. That is, they are becoming one with an unbeliever through the marriage union. And yet Paul here emphatically states that such marriages are just as valid and just as binding in the eyes of the Lord as one between two Christians. 
all marriages are acts of God. That's why, that's why Jesus says, what God has put together, let no man separate. And the reason why the Apostle Paul says that these marriages between uh, this mixed marriage is just as valid and even just as holy in the eyes of the Lord is because of what he says in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And likewise, the unbelieving wife is made holy, literally sanctified. Now, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he speaks of the believing spouse somehow sanctifying the unbelieving spouse? Does this refer to a a positive influence uh, that, uh, that the believer has upon the unbeliever, being a good witness and a good example to them, uh, 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 you know, uh, creating somehow this wholesome household where children are raised despite the fact that one, belie- one parent is an unbeliever? Well, no. You see, while the Apostle Paul holds out the possibility that the unbelieving spouse may be one to Christ, as we see at the end of our passage, it is certainly not guaranteed He is not commenting on the unbeliever's relative morality uh, or the the relative moral influence that the believing spouse has upon the other. But rather, when he talks about the unbelieving spouse being sanctified, I think he's using that word, the word holy, in its biblical sense or in, in the sense that we get from the Old Testament. Its literal sense of being set apart. Being set apart. You see, in the law... There were certain things that were set apart as holy as unto the Lord. You can think especially of the temple uh, or or the priesthood. Those things were set apart as holy, being different from the rest of of life. And it was through that, that sacrificial system, through the Levitical priesthood, that the whole of Israel, in one sense, was considered holy as unto the Lord as God's covenant people. That's why the Lord says, you need to be holy even as I am holy. Israel was set apart. They were different from the rest of the nations. That's what, that's what is meant there. Not necessarily just the morality of the people, but in a sense that they are set apart as unto the Lord. And yet we see something radically different here than what we see in the Old Testament. Whereas in the Old Testament, if something was set apart as holy, if it came into contact with anything unclean, it was immediately defiled. It was immediately made unholy or common. And yet we see just the opposite happening here. In the new covenant, we see a complete reversal of the way in which the Lord works and the way in which the Lord views households in that it's not the It's not the unholy thing defiling the holy thing. It's rather the holy believer somehow sanctifying the unbeliever. It's it's the exact opposite. Now, note here that Paul is not saying that the unbeliever is somehow saved. Clearly, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Or even that the unbelieving spouse should be considered as part of the church. I don't think he's saying that either. Rather, Paul's main point has to do with the children. Paul's main point here, as he's addressing the the believers in a mixed marriage, is the way in which they should view their children. And he says, your children are not unclean, but they are now holy. 
Now, how is it that the children of, of believers or the children of at least one believing parent are holy? Well, certainly not by nature. We all know that, those of us who have children. We know that they're born vipers and diapers. We know uh, that the Apostle Paul tells us that all of us were born by nature as children of wrath. Neither do I think the Apostle Paul is saying that they are being made holy as if through a process, through the child-rearing process or uh, through the process we call sanctification, although that should certainly happen for our children. It's something we should pray for and work towards. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying either because he says they are now holy. He speaks with definitive authority. He speaks as, as if it is a once and for all act that is currently present, that your children are holy. Well, in what sense then are they holy? Well, clearly in the covenantal sense. That is, children ought to be included within the covenant community. They ought to be considered as holy as unto the Lord. They have been claimed by the Lord, and they therefore ought to be part of the church. And so the parent, so the, un, so the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse to make it as it were, as, as if they were a believer, as if there was a Christian household, uh, and therefore, therefore, the children now are holy. And so the Apostle Paul, in encouraging these, these believing believers not to divorce their unbelieving sp- uh, partners primarily because the children are holy. The children, therefore, ought to be considered as part of the church. And therefore, of course, why would we withhold the sign of belonging to the church? Why would we withhold baptism from these children? That's why we say in our book of church order that if the children of one believing parent, uh, are, uh, if, if there's one believing parent, then the children are holy and therefore ought to be presented for baptism. So he's encouraging these people, do not forsake your marriages. If, they're, if they want to stay with you, stay with them. Your children are holy. You sanctify them in that sense. But of course, that's not always going to be the case. It will not always be the case that the unbelieving spouse is, is content to live or consents to live with them. But rather, it may very likely be the case that they want to separate. They want to get a divorce And the Apostle Paul in verse 15 says, if that is the case, then let it happen. If they want a divorce, let it happen. Now, he urges them, notice, to let this happen. And it's also important to note that he has no words for the unbeliever. And that's ultimately because they do not submit to the authority of Christ or the teachings of the church. He's just addressing the believers And he says, if your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, let it happen. And then he goes on to say, you are not enslaved. You are not enslaved. Or this brother or this sister who is left or forsaken by the unbeliever is not enslaved. Now, we might ask at this point, to what? What is the Apostle Paul saying that they are free from? I think very clearly from the context, he's saying that they are not enslaved to the marriage contract. They're not bound to the vows that they had given uh, at the beginning of their marriage because the unbelieving partner has deserted them. And so in that sense, they ought to be viewed as if they were dead. Skip ahead to verse 39, and I think 
Paul sort of unpacks what he means when he says you are not enslaved to this, uh, to this marriage. In verse 39 of chapter 7, he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. It's a different Greek word, but the same concept. You're bound to, to, your, uh, to your spouse through your marriage vows. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. The Apostle Paul has very similar language in Romans chapter 7, as he talks about how the fact that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, likening it to the fact that we have been, become dead to the law and are alive to Christ. Now, Jewish rabbis, which the Apostle Paul was one before he became a Christian, often likened marriage to slavery. Not because they viewed marriage as restrictive, but because the marriage bond for them was taken so seriously. You were literally chained to this person until death do you part. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the Apostle Paul, recognized the fact that because of the sins that we commit against each other, that sometimes those sins are so serious that an irreparable breach of the marriage covenant can happen. Things like adultery, things like willful desertion, give just cause for the innocent party to pursue a divorce, or in this case, to allow it, and therefore to be free to remarry another as if the offending party were dead. That's how our own confession of faith summarizes the teaching of divorce. And I think we get that from here. As the Apostle Paul says, you are not enslaved, you could let him go, and therefore you are free to marry whomever you wish in the Lord. And so that's one thing I think we should definitely take home from the passage today. That for the innocent party in a divorce, there ought not to be any shame. There ought not to be any social stigma for those who, for no fault of their own, were divorced. I find it very interesting in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph is extolled as a just man as he contemplates divorcing Mary and putting her away quietly. It's interesting that in in Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord presents himself as getting a divorce, as giving Israel the divorce certificate. Why? Because she was spiritually unfaithful to him. So if Joseph can be extolled as a righteous man, as he contemplates divorce, as the Lord himself uh, presents himself as divorcing his unfaithful bride, how much more ought we to have compassion towards those innocent parties who were sinned against? and who ultimately had to get a divorce. And yet the Apostle Paul then exhorts us and reminds us of the fact that we were called to peace. It's interesting that as we consider how divorce often is, it's very contentious, very acrimonious as the two parties fight it out bitterly. And yet the Apostle Paul says, I want you to do this as peacemakers. Remember that God has called you to peace. Here, I think he's referencing basically what he says in Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
I mean, that's essentially what he's telling these, uh, these people found, who find themselves in a mixed marriage. As far as it depends on you, be at peace. And even if they want to go, let them go. Why? Because God has called you to peace. You're a peacemaker. Then I think he goes back to the encouraging part, to, to encourage them to remain in these marriages. When he asks this, requ- this question in verse 16, for how do you know? How do you know? By encouraging these people to remain in the marriage, he, encourages, he, he, he holds out the hope that God may sovereignly use them to win their unsaved spouse to the Lord. So he says, stick, stick in it. Stay in the marriage because the Lord may use you to save them. I think Peter has very similar wording in 1 Peter chapter 3 where he says, likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so here I think Paul, similar to the words of Peter, he urges us as married couples to put on the mind of Christ, to conduct ourselves in a way that promotes peace and love, to, to conduct ourselves in such a way that we could even win over an unbelieving spouse without a word, just merely by the way we put on the mind of Christ, how we are not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our mind. And so as we consider this passage today, it's important for us to see how the Apostle Paul urges us not to adopt the wisdom of the world or the ways of the world, in particular the way in which our world views marriage and divorce. But rather, he challenges us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, to have the mind of Christ who did not put himself first, but gave his life as a ransom for many. That's why I think the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 presents the way in which Christ deals with, has dealt with the church and the way in which he loves the church as the model for husbands. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord even as the church does her Lord. You see here, Christ, what he has done for us is both the ground and the model for the way in which we as married couples can put on the mind of Christ and live together in peace. And as we do so, a beautiful picture is presented to the world. A beautiful picture of the way in which Christ has loved the church and the way in which the church submits to our Lord is presented to those around us. May God grant to us all grace to be able to have the mind of Christ to live at peace, and to, and to portray the love that Christ has for us to the world. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you so loved us, that you were willing to give your life as a ransom in order to obtain us as your bride. Although we were enemies of you, you gave your life for those who wanted your death. And yet, Lord, you have saved us and redeemed us and given us your spirit and and made us one together with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And may we live in newness of life 
We ask all of this in your name. Amen.